0: Welcome to the International Buzz podcast, brought to you by Wordbee. I'm your co-host Tanya Falkner, and this episode is the recording of a panel discussion about machine translation for the language industry, where we talked about trends such as context-aware MT, quality estimation, adaptive systems, and more. Hear from four experts what we can expect from neural machine translation in the near future. Welcome to this expert panel about trends in machine translation for the language industry in 2020. This event is brought to you by WordBee, the makers of the WordBee translation management system and CAT tool, which also integrates nicely with leading MT providers. And we do have several customizable options for MT workflows as well. So today's event is hosted by my colleague Robert Rogie. That's me. And myself, Tanya Falkner. And we'll be talking with experts about quality estimation, MT, engine evaluation, predictions, and a whole lot more. So for our listeners, if you have any questions or comments during the panel, feel free to write them in the chat box on the right-hand side of your screen, (laughs) and we'll try to address them either during the panel or towards the end.
1: Right on. So we're super excited to welcome our four experts here with us today. And so we've got Yuka Nakasimone. She's the globalization director at Intento. We've got Paula Reichenberg, CEO of Hieronymus. Maxim Kalilov, who's the head of R&D at Global, And Samuel Lobley, the CTO of Tech Shuttle. And so it's a super cool group today. And we'd like to give you a chance to introduce yourselves, your projects, your companies, and just give us the overview. Let's start with Yuka in the upper left.
2: Hi, everybody. My name is Yuka Nakasone. The Robert introduced me. I'm working for a company called Intento, which is an AI company. And what we do is to provide actually evaluation service of MT engines. We just released MT engine evaluation and trend report for 2020. You can grab it from our website or press release. And what we provide is a little special. It's a empty engine curation platform, which means you can use lots of many empty engines with many use cases in one company, like localization, content management, or support and so on. So that's it. Thank you.
1: Thanks. So let's move on down to Paula.
3: Hello to all of you. I'm Paula. I've been working at Hieronymus for the past 10 years or 13 years even. Hieronymus is a a traditional language service provider. We specialize on legal and financial tech. So all our translations are reviewed by with lawyers. And so we didn't want to miss the train of MT. And we've started to train our own engines about one year ago. We've been using them within the company very successfully, and we are now going to go further into that direction and launch our engines called Lex Machina, kind of publicly for lawyers in autumn. And so our stance on MT at Euronymous is that we believe in hyper-specialization of the engines for very specific topics. So for us, a Swiss legal engine is not enough. We want to have legal engines just for one document or just for one topic of the law. And for that, we need a lot of very precise data. And so that's what our company is specializing on at the moment, is really to be able to find and to process and prepare hyper-specialized data in the legal and financial industry in Switzerland.
4: Cool. So let's move on over to Maxim there. Hi. Hi, everyone. So I'm currently in Spain, uh, in Barcelona. I'm a head of R&D at a company which is called Lolo. I think some of you, those who live in the south of Europe and uh, well, maybe Latin America and uh, in some countries in Africa, know this company because we do the on-demand delivery. So, primarily focusing on uh, food delivery, but also we cover like uh, groceries and some other some other product categories. So, um, right now, I'm mostly responsible for the infrastructure for machine learning. So, not specifically for uh, language data, but also or pretty much like a say, classical applications of machine learning, like prediction, uh, classification, etc. So I'm not dealing like, too much with data science this day per se, but my team, we are providing services and tools and processes to data scientists to be able to scale it up and uh, put their models in production. So I've been at uh, Global for like a little bit over four months now. So starting during lockdown with COVID time, so online onboarding, all this interesting experiences, but anyway, and before that, I was at Unbubble, so some of you might know it. It's a, a hybrid machine uh, versus uh, crowdsourcing human translation solution, primarily focusing on customer service these days. So yeah, I was uh, responsible for the Department of Applied AI there, so dealing with different aspects of uh, machine translation quality estimation. etc. Very happy to be here. Thank you for inviting Thanks, Maxim,
1: and uh, Samuel.
5: Yeah, thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, also from my side in Zurich. Um, so I'm representing a Swiss company too. Company is called Text Shuttle. We are a machine translation provider. So we really provide uh, specialized machine translation engines. And the focus is on well, two things I'd say. One is um, adaptability. Um, well, as Paula mentioned, um, well, uh, specialized engines are important, of course. Um, and we try to really make machines adaptable like instantly. So if you have your own terminology, your own translation memories in a CAT tool, let's say the machine translation engine should be able to benefit from these resources on the spot rather than, well, retraining engines like training specialized engines. Um, And the other specialization we have is on-premise deployment. That's still a thing for some companies in Switzerland, especially insurance companies, banks, and they don't necessarily want to use things hosted in, in public clouds. So that's one thing we do. We provide on-premise engines if people want that. Yeah, my background is in machine translation. I just finished PhD in this field at the University of Zurich and previously worked with um, Autodesk, a U.S. company some of you might know. They're actually quite involved in past editing research, like maybe among the first companies to use it machine translation, statistical machine translation on a large scale in a production environment. And I was with Lilt for a short time not too long ago. So, yeah.
1: Yeah, we had someone on one of our previous panels from Autodesk. I can't remember exactly who it was, but it sounds like they're doing really cool stuff at Autodesk. Yeah. Right on.
0: Great. Thank you, everybody, for the introductions. So let's jump right in. First and foremost, we would like to know from you, like, how do you see, how does NMT, like normal machine translation, fit into the bigger picture of AI because when we look at, at machine translation, and it's been around for like years and years, I think it was 1950s, if I'm not mistaken, and some say it's part of AI. So do you think that actually the translation industry might have been leading sort of in this field? What's your take on this? You're all happy to jump in, whoever wants to go first.
4: <laughs> yeah, maybe let me start a little bit. Machine translation is part of the bigger topic, which is computational linguistics right, and natural language processing. And generally, like I think your question can be a little bit generalized towards how machine learning or artificial intelligence in general works with, with disciplines, like computational linguistics and, and all. And I would say there are a lot of similarities. A lot of, for example, problems that I'm dealing with these days related to how to put the model in production, how to make sure that when the world changes, your model adapts to the changes in the model how to make sure that your model is online and delivering delivering like uh, high-quality results, they're all the same. Let's say there's not much difference between like general machine learning and machine translation in this sense. But on the other hand, machine translation is dealing with unstructured data. Right? You cannot go to the database and find that, okay, there is a record. This is, I don't know, the city of London, and this is the current temperature in uh, London on uh, today. Right? And then you can like collect a lot of data like that and do the prediction. Like machine translation is different. You have texts in English and in German, right? And then you need to compare them and do something useful about them. And this is kind of a different and to a certain extent like difficult problem because you need to have like models which aggregate enough information from unstructured data, first of all, find the structure represented in the machine-readable format, and then build a model on the basis of that. Yeah, this is the technology perspective, right? And from the practical perspective, I think that for many years, the localization industry in general was trying to find the fit for machine translation and how to make it work for the customers and for themselves. The early stage view on that, let's say five, ten years ago, there were a lot of discussions, and I, I'm sure that many of you remember those discussions, whether machine translation is useful for productivity or not. Right? If, it can, if it helps, if post-addition is uh, faster than translation from scratch. There are a lot of benchmarks, there were a lot of discussions, a lot of um, academic publications, uh, webinars. Well, back then, there were not so many webinars, but then maybe even conference talks. And it's actually, it's very impressive that these days we are not having these invitations anymore, right? I mean, at least at, scale, at that scale as before. Now we're talking about, okay, I know that 90% or maybe 80% of the data that machine translation generates is useful, right? It can be used like without like any serious post edition But now the problem is how to notify it where this 20% of bad translations sit. And yeah, we are just living in a very new era in this A and this sense. And that's where AI is playing a very new and very important role. It's not how to produce translations anymore. It's how to basically distinguish good translations from bad translations. Right? so I think it's a kind of a new, new paradigm that we need to all adopt and yeah, discuss.
1: Mm-hmm. Any comments? Right on. Just kind of we might as well talk about quality estimation then. So in an article, Actually, this is an article that you write, wrote, Maxine Fertaus, last year you wrote that it's very likely in 2020 that QE of machine translation quality will be productized at scale and that we will see the rise of truly hybrid MTQE systems. So I guess maybe if someone wants to field a question about what exactly is QE for people who who might not understand it, as far as this prediction,
4: what does the panel think about QE in 2020.
0: Maybe we'll need the QE uh, QE explanation from you first, Maxime.
4: Yeah. So quality estimation, and this is uh, let's say there were a lot of attempts to do it in the past, and only in the maybe like recent three four years it, uh, started to show like pretty significant and significantly good results, right? And that's why it started to in the academia started to put a lot, uh, some resources into into research on this topic, and there was some adoption at industry, not. As much as it could be, but there is some. So, this is the technology, the machine learning actually tool that automatically assigns a risk assessment score on machine translation output. And what is important here is that it doesn't have access to human generated reference translation. So, imagine that you have an empty engine which produces translations, and the system goes to these translations, looks at it, and tells you if it's good or bad. Sounds almost like magic, but uh, yeah, it's. If you look at it from the machine transla- machine learning point of view, it's nothing more than just predict translation based on the input of the system and then compare this, let's say, inexistent machine translation output with a perfect translation, right? So, And then you have a distance. And basically, this, the quality estimation score is nothing more than just an estimation assessment of the distance between uh, translation that your MT engine produced and the inexistent perfect translation, you see? So it's very interesting to look at it from the product uh, point of view, because it actually, if imagine if you are like a machine translation provider, right? And you have a customer which requests you to produce a significant amount of data, significant amount of translation. And you have two restrictions, time and cost, typically, right? So. And then maybe in some situations, you can play a little bit with quality. So, I mean, you probably, it's fine if you don't have like a full stop in the end of the sentence, if you can do it uh, without cost addition, right? And then this technology quality estimation can allow you to play a little bit with this quality boundaries, trading it off with cost and time. So, that's why I believe that actually from the product and business perspective, it can be a very interesting technology
3: globally. So we're talking about the use of it in uh, 2020 at Eronimus. We are mainly using it at the moment to actually assess the data that we want to um, use to train an engine. So um, because uh, we are really doing a lot of work on the training data, our linguists need to be efficient. And this is why we use uh, those metrics, actually, the the possibilities of model front. It's to assess the data we're given and the data we are parsing or the data we are creating ourselves, it helps the linguists, the computational linguists in their evaluation of this data. At this stage, it is that now we could not use it to evaluate the translations produced by the machine because in our very specialized topic for the law, you still need to have everything post edited. So actually telling the post editor to concentrate more on this or this segment Will is too risky because they will miss actually sentences that seem right to the QE system, but that really would need to be post edited. So the use we're having now in 2020 is this one is really assessment of data, and why we would like to use it in the future is to detect which engine is the best for a document. So kind of uh, translating, and this is I think Yuka what uh, what you're doing at Intento to. To be able to select the best engines or an assemblage of engines mm-hmm. to be able to produce the best translation altogether at the end, depending on the text and depending on the context. Mm-hmm. So these are the two main uses that I see for it in 2020, and I think it will take some more time, at least for specialized fields like the law, for it to be used directly by the post editors. It's very very interesting what you said, Paula, because I just
2: hosted. I mean, what, I was uh, one of Process Dragon at uh, Lockwood Process Innovation Challenge and Model Fronts presented their product. So, like Maxim said, maybe this uh, QE is going to be like a product in 2020. Is a uh, kind of uh, true that it went really big right now. And he said this technology is not an innovation. I mean, actually, any big companies like Google, Microsoft, everybody else who is producing machine. Uh, Translation engine is already using it, but his innovation is taking it to public. Like anybody can use this kind of prediction. Like you said, this is not precise quality assessment or edit whatsoever. I'm not sure if uh, everybody who is watching this understands what kind of technology we're talking about. It is about predicting the most risky words in machine translation. For example, like Georgia in English sentence can be a country name or can be another place name in the United States, a state name, right? And if you translate it badly, it's a damage. And this can be predicted. This type of uh, prediction is uh, what, we are talking about. It is correct, Maxim. I think this is, and it's a very useful tool, like Paula said. If you can run it beforehand, maybe you can see where the machine translation is failing. I think this is a very useful technology to take advantage of, and people should be aware of it.
4: Yeah, it's a great example, Yuga. Actually, I usually use like another one, which is like yeah. I think. Even simpler than that. So imagine that in your source sentence you have something about like fifty dollars, right? So we will reimburse you like for uh, our failure like fifty dollars,
1: mm-hmm.
4: and then in translation you have five hundred dollars. It's because you know the U engine failed, and mm-hmm. then you can compare like source and target. You can find that there are numbers there, right? Of course, there are a lot of limitations on that mm-hmm. if we talk about like non-machine learning technologies because you need to have only like a single number and so on and source in source and just one number in target. And then uh, if you compare them, you see it's 50 dollars, and 500 dollars, then most probably you have a machine translation error. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Paula, I think it's a very interesting use case that you brought, right? Because what you are doing is you are basically, you are using quality estimation to filter the input data. To,
3: to um, rebound on your example, in German, if you read reports, financial reports or other reports, they will always say in German, im Berichtsjahr, im Berichtsjahr, bericht ja, in the year of the report, which you would never say in English or in French. You would say in 2019, "en 2019. You wouldn't say in, im Berichtsjahr. And so it means that when you want to feed an, an engine with all these, these already pre-translated financial reports, this sentence will either automatically be eliminated each time because you have some quality uh, control that filters the data before the training. And then every time the word Berichtia appears in German, this segment will be en- eliminated from your data. Or you will leave it as it is, but it might kind of play bad tricks on your engine. So this is something that our computer linguists have to analyze to find a solution to that problem so that Our engine will be perfectly able to translate financial reports. And when they say in German, they will not write in English in the year of the report, but they will say something else that we will input. We have a linguistic solution to such a kind of machine translation problem. So that's why we use quality assurance on the training data to spot all these issues and to go after them and correct them before training or after to correct the machine translation output. Mm-hmm.
1: So that's a really cool strategy, I think, for improving your machine translation. And your projects, they all sound super cool, especially the, what was it called again? Lex? Machina? Lex, yeah. Lex Machina. Right, oh, of course, right on. So this is a question for Samuel then. So what are some of the cool things you're doing at Tech Shuttle, and maybe what are some of the trends that you see in machine translation right now?
5: Mm, yeah, it's interesting to hear like also what Paula says about quality estimation, because uh, what we've been talking about now for the past few minutes was really, well, detecting errors. Of course, there are errors in machine translation outputs, and then we have quality estimation to maybe well spot them and then focus on them possibly. Well, what I find very interesting, too, of course, is actually avoiding errors, obviously. So, I mean, it's one thing to be able to say, okay, maybe you should focus on that part. There might be an error in there. But with the example Paula just brought up, well, another thing you could do, of course, is instead of, well, trying to identify these errors, especially if you're in a specialized field, you could actually use some sort of real-time adaptation or like integration of prior knowledge into empty output right so if i'm a translator in the financial field i'm quite sure i have a translation memory that somewhere has a fuzzy match and it states okay so it should be that in the target language and so what uh, we are actually really focusing on is well making sure that this fuzzy match in the actual project i'm working right now can be incorporated into the empty output And this is of course another approach it's not so much about finding errors there will be errors yes but avoiding that people will have to repeatedly correct the same mistakes over and over again because well as research shows as the internet social media shows that there's nothing more that that post editors hate that's like if empty engines are just dumb and like i've said it before and i did it wrong again so yeah not saying it, this can be complementary, of course. I'm not saying, um, but really, like, I think like integration of prior knowledge in like real time. And I'm not talking model adaptation, not necessarily I have an engine that learns like over time. Because if I have a translation memory, if I have a term base, why should an empty engine learn? I mean, it's there. The knowledge is actually specified. Right. So like it's interesting to see methods that have been published in 2019 already that allow like direct integration of such prior knowledge into empty output. I think this is a very interesting trend too, that should also be productivized more. And maybe one more addition there. Then of course, it's also important to look at the interplay between tools that people use and machine translation engines, right? Because of course, if I have a translation engine that is able to integrate such knowledge, it's not much use if, if the CAT tool, for example, that a person wants to work with can provide this information. If I have a Terminology-aware machine translation engine, for example, well, I need this information from the client, from the CAT tool, for example. And then this is, I think, something we might see, well, this year, next year, yeah, things might change there. So tighter integration into tools that translator actually use.
3: Yes, so um, we are at the moment testing exactly this, what we call adaptive or on-the-fly learning technology where your model takes into account your translation memories. So, but again, it means for us from a data perspective that your translation memory would must be really relevant and really good and really precise for the use you want to have. And thanks to this adaptive technology, your model evolves immediately while you post edit So that's also an important technology. And the other one you're, you're mentioning, the integration of terminology. But again, for the legal field, terminology is so field-specific because uh, the same word in social insurance has a different meaning in patent law and in uh, tax law. And so this is why the client doesn't necessarily know. They think they have, they, they give you terminology databases, but they are too messy to be used for very specific in the legal field. It really depends on the type of clients. But this is why. So we work on this data, but still integrating, of course, the kind of latest uh, adaptive technology for you know integration of transition memories and terminology i think this is essential and yeah i think that's that's interesting
5: if i may comment on that yeah no sorry you may of course finish yourself okay Uh, no because what you're saying of course if you you may have a messy term base let's say right but then again we're talking about like specialization and specialized engines and so on i still think if you give end-users a means of actually changing the empty output with a term base, let's say, then these people can actually do it yourself, themselves, right? So I can totally use another term base or clean a term base, but I cannot necessarily train another engine. And then that's maybe going to take me a week or two and so on, right? So this is a totally different process. So I'd say, of course, you're right. Yes, you need good resources. But especially in specialized fields, we see that well, people do have these resources. And then the interesting thing is, of course, you're working on one project, let's say, even in the legal field, like in a very specialized field. And if it's well integrated into a CAT tool, so you switch to another field, not a project. And then, well, the empty engine will just use these resources that are enabled in that project. So this is more of an end user focus where I personally would like to see more, really. I think we're like, of course, in research, we're talking a lot about like technical details and stuff that we can improve in the back end. But then what's happening on the front end and how these two are integrated, that's very, very essential. I think this will change a lot going forward. Also, this distinction is artificial in practice, if you ask me. We talk about front ends like clients, cat tools, and back ends. But for a user, for a translator, it's the same at the end of the day. The wrong thing coming out. And if I have a means of, of um, influencing this, I think this can be very interesting.
3: Oh, yes. No, no. I think it's essential, especially since DeepL uh, launched its terminology adaption option for pro users. Now, I think that absolutely every MT user expects, you know, MT providers to have such a solution too. So I think this is definitely 2020 and for sure 2021. So there is no way you can offer a product nowadays without having that option. So I agree with you, Samuel.
1: So we have a question from the audience that just came in from Andy. It's how do you update an MT engine with just terms? So for, what does it look like in practice?
5: Like we, for example, we're using an approach that's been published in 2019 by people from Amazon, it's by Dino et al. It's actually quite simple. You basically place the target terms in the source sentence, and then the MT engine learns in the training to actually place these words in the target language that are in the source sentence in the actual target. I don't think mm-hmm. we can go into technical details here, but it looks very mm-hmm. funny if you look at the training examples, but it works astonishingly well. So sense, <laughs> that's really <cluttered>. uh, yeah, <laughs> it's not our idea, of course, so yeah, so it's out there. Many people are using, I mean, DeepL is probably using it, right? So maybe that's, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe you can comment on this, next. Time.
4: Yeah, I think this is a kind of a de facto standard approach these days, right? The only problem is that it's more difficult to implement it for morphologically rich languages. If you have morphological variations, well, like Russian, Hungarian, Finnish, a bunch of other languages, then this approach, uh, it still works, but it has like a very natural limitations. Mm
0: -hmm.
5: Absolutely.
0: Samuel, could you just repeat where this was published and he just had a follow-up question so he can find it again if he looks for it?
5: Oh, sure. It's a paper by Dinu et al. And it was published at uh, ACL 2019. It was a short paper.
0: Thanks. All right, so another thing that we wanted to talk about with you is also something that Maxi mentioned in his article, and that is context-aware MT. So can you elaborate a bit on that, and where are we at right now with context-aware MT? Uh,
4: yeah, sure. So the idea is very simple, right? Traditionally, machine translation engines, they translate sentence by sentence. Right. So, and typically they look at sentences as a kind of an isolated unit. So they're not looking like at the text before or after. And of course, it has like some limitations, right? Because sometimes, I mean, if, for example, you translate the word eat into, let's say, like Spanish, Italian or some, some other languages, which have like more genders, then it's not necessarily clear from the context what is eat, if it's like a male or female, right? So, and without uh, having access to the previous context, you probably will never will be like a random guess. So, and that's uh, one of the problems that context where MT, which also sometimes called document-level machine translation, can solve, right? So, in a very simple, uh, in a very simple uh, form, you can just, when you translate a sentence X, you just look at one, two, like five previous sentences, right? And you use this information when you generate the final translation. But of course, there are like much more sophisticated technologies uh, doing that, especially these days when you have transformers, which can push these decisions to the attention field, right? So not like directly using the words, but using the representation of the words in a kind of a much bigger metric. So I think this is something that has been in the focus of, let's say, Google, for instance, for some years already. Uh, they seem to have some progress, and that field DeepL also, like for a while already. It has. Um, a system which conditions translation of a a sentence on the previous ones in production. And I think a couple of other companies uh, have uh, experimented with it pretty extensively. Yeah, so that's uh, the idea.
2: And I I can talk about uh, Japanese language. That's true that Spanish uh, has more gender, so you need more context. But for example, Japanese language is very, very ambiguous. We don't say everything that we need to communicate so you have to guess from previous things that you said or maybe after if it's written and actually there's some technology already in development and I saw it from a Japanese company doing paragraph not segment or sentence uh, uh, based uh, machine translation but paragraph machine translation so it takes whole context of paragraph to translate from uh, let's say from um Japanese into English something like that so that's uh, for sure it's a trend i i see right now
5: yeah, i would totally agree there and it's interesting what you're mentioning i think in actually in many languages is this is more important Than we might think at times, because now we're still amazed by how neural machine translation gave us this quality boost, right? Because earlier on, we had like statistical machine translation focused on like short, like n grams, phrases, whatever. And we had these strong independence assumptions in models. And we were like, well, of course, this can't work. We were focusing on, on units that are too small. But I'm actually quite sure, like in five years, we'll be looking back and saying, like, what the hell did we do strong independence assumptions between sentences, right? We are translating texts after all. So this might make a big, big difference, I think. And as Maxi mentioned, I think there's lots of interesting research out also. I mean, at the large contest in research, uh, WMT, actually, Microsoft also presented a very strong system in, in that direction. And then, well, it's always a question. We have this evaluations against human translators and then is a machine translation system able to get there and stuff. This is not a discussion, but well, at this competition, for example, these systems came very close in, in this evaluation scheme, at least. So it's definitely something to look at, I'd say. Mm-hmm.
1: So when you're developing a machine translation solution and you're looking at all of these trends that are going on now and all of these new methods and everything is so cutting edge, like how do you decide which ones you're going to try to build or do
5: you just try to build all of them? Should I? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Can Yeah, I mean, (laughs) honestly, at least I can talk for Shuttle. I mean, we're not a big company. We're not Microsoft, of course. Um, But even at Shuttle, we're really trying to look at all these trends and then actually, well, indeed, re-implement them, if you will. If something is published, it's one thing, right? So it's maybe a specific data set, a specific condition. But I think the first thing you kind of have to do is, well, let's see, does it actually work? And then can you scale it? I mean, with document-level machine translation, with current approaches, it's also quite a big hardware problem, honestly. You have to ask yourself, okay, I mean, maybe I could throw a lot of hardware on that, and then I, maybe I can tail it up. Is it worth it? and so, stuff? Well, the way we do it is we look at these things, we try to make them work with the customer, well, data we have for specific customers and see if they might be interested in that. And then we prioritize at some point. But I... I'm not sure if that's the general approach. Uh, this is also very generic, what I'm saying, of course.
4: <laughs> yeah, I think it's a product decision to a certain extent, right? So first of all, you look at the problems that you have in your translation. So you basically speak with a customer, you can do analysis yourself, you can analyze the customer complaints if you have any. And this is a kind of the first level of prioritization. And then you look at, as Samuel said, so what is available and how easy it is to try and scale some of these technologies. So I think the first level, if it's published or not, Someone else said that. Second, if the open source code is available, right? So if you need to like, code it yourself, or you can just take an existing solution and try to adapt it to it. So it will also define basically your, uh, your barrier of entry. So, yeah, and probably you also look at strategy a little bit. So, what is important for your company in the long run? So, if you, for example, you want to balance I don't know, like quality versus time and cost somehow, as I mentioned at the beginning. Or if you have a, a case like similar to, to the one that Paola has, when quality should be always like at 100%, you cannot miss like a full stop or whatever. And then probably it's not in strategy, right? You need to look at other things like context-aware MT.
3: And for us as clients of, of MT providers, for us, it's important to know of the trends early enough so that we can prepare. So for us, again, talking about data gathering, it means that the data we gather and prepare must be compatible with document-level translation or paragraph-level translation. So whatever is going to happen within the next five years, we don't want the work that we're doing today to be useless. So it's very important to be aware of the possibilities of the future and to already adapt today because we can do it at little cost today. And then if the technology is ready in five years, we are also ready to swap. This is, I think, is important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. I guess that would be very tricky right now because it's changing so fast, right? So you mentioned, I mean, Intenso is, is specializing in evaluating and helping people to choose MTs. What were the challenges that companies are facing when it comes to MT evaluation?
2: Like I said before, the choosing machine uh, translation engine is a very huge task. And sometimes we have to think who is evaluating that the machine engines and evaluate the the people who are evaluating. That's one thing that you have to be aware that why we we have this problem because like you said, the change is so fierce and fast. The truth today is not going to be the truth tomorrow. I mean, what's the best today may not be the best tomorrow, you know, and like uh, Paula's engine is the best in the world translating legal documenting uh, in Switzerland. Maybe for Japan, there's another engine that is maybe equivalent. I, I'm not sure. <laughs> we <laughs> we do Definitely. I hope so. Yeah. The problem is machine engine. We talk about um, machine translations uh, globally and we are forgetting about verticals and language pairs. That's where Intento is doing lots of uh, study and we are studying in Deciding the verticals and with specified language pairs, who is doing what? Who is the best at this moment of time? Who is the best doing what? And this kind of study is very, very important for you to choose. So you need to hire somebody to do it if you are not specialized, which Intento does as well. And then actually the best of the field is maybe from three or five engines, commercial engines. So you have to mix all the engines to to use your multilingual content. In that moment, maybe you have to think how to use engines efficiently. This is where Intento is uh, coming to play because we have a, I don't want to pitch, but (laughs) it's a totally different type of product than Cat tool or TMS or or what we use Translation industry is used to translate. You can choose the machine translation engines, the best possible engines for each language pair in your vertical, and you can mix it and provide the machine, the engine to each use case, meaning enterprise meaning. If legal department needs machine translation, you can use this one. If accounting department needs this machine engine, you can use this one. And if web translation needs another engine, you can use this one. You can mix it with uh, one platform, which Intento provides. And of course, there's different workflow for each department, but the general idea is you can do many-to-many many relation in enterprise to use machine translation. Is it, is it for everybody? And a little different from the model we have because localization is one of the use cases we provide the services. It's not the localization team providing machine translation, but localization is one of the people who can use the platform to use multiple Machine transition, is it clear? Yeah. So that in this way you can catch up with the change in machine transition engine is going.
1: Well, through. it's also it's interesting, I think, for Paula and Samuel too, because it's like, well, how do people find your engine? You know? So like Tech Shuttle is like the best at uh, incorporating the TMs, you know, maybe Paula's is the best at legal for certain language pairs but how are people going to find you and how are they going to know that you're the best i guess i think this makes perfect sense so to swing back around then to trends for mt this uh, the selection process is for mt is is difficult which is i think why we have intento one one of the questions we were going to ask earlier too is how are engines dealing with multilingual and multi domain configurations so is like managing multiple domains is that Let's talk about MT and multiple domains. Is that going to be a thing? <laughs> I know you all have different ideas about this. So, <laughs> 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 All right, let's kick it off with Paula.
3: <laughs> multiple domains, you mean that's the difference between generic and specific engines? Yeah. And that is what is going to win? I think both. It really depends mm-hmm. on the context. I think we need a generic engine ourselves because court decisions, you always start with a description of the fact. And it can be anything, someone attacking someone with a spoon, which is going to happen once only in the history of Switzerland. So you need to have a very broad engine to be able to correctly explain in French how to attack someone with a spoon. And then it's very different in the kind of the legal assessment of it that is always going to be the same in in criminal law. So even for us, we need both. And I think the future is really open for both. It will never be cost efficient to develop a specific engine for spoon (laughs) attack.
0: Who knows?
3: (laughs) Hopefully not.
4: Yeah, I mean, I think it's totally right. Because if we look at specialization, for example, if you speak the language, right? If you speak, for example, English and French, for example, it doesn't mean that you can translate a legal text. It's too happy a specialization. And same comes to machine translation, right? The engines which allow you to speak two languages and the engines which allow you to do specialized translation for a particular domain. So how it's implemented and what are the trends on the technology side these days, I think it's very interesting because you can do three things, right? So first one is you can train different engines. That's one engine for generic translation and another one, you just take the data, legal translations, translation memories, we use them as a training data. Then you have like an engine, a separate engine just for legal translation, for instance. You can do, of course, like domain adaptation. And this is a kind of a main trend these days. So you use, a bunch of generic data, non-legal, uh, to train like a big generic engine first, and then you customize it for a particular domain, maybe legal, farmer, whatever. So, and this is something that, uh, well, I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. If you compare with, it, let's say, like Google Translate, if you use it as a benchmark, but typically you have like some like good chances to win. And there is a third approach, which is like. Pretty new, I would say, and you need like, a lot of computational power for that, and you need to have courage and resources for research. It's uh, basically when you put different uh, training data together, and you train separate engines in the same system. Right? So maybe domains is not bit, the best example here, but let's imagine that you have like, data for English German and English French, right? And this data is different. It's not like the, they're not triplets. They're like two set data. You put all of them together in one neural network, uh, do a little bit of training, and then in that you might have a system uh, which will handle both translations in one end. So, imagine now that you have much less data for French than for German. And in this case, you have chances that your translation for French, where you don't have much data, trained in this way will be better than if you had two isolate engines, because yeah, neural, neural networks work this way. They can use that structure that they can inherit from the source language somehow to improve the overall quality of the system. And you can apply the same logic for domain if you want. I mean, to be honest, I don't know what many applications, real applications of this approach these days, except for some experiment that happened in academia, and uh, Google also published a couple of papers in this, in this area. But it's a very interesting approach to look at, especially for you know languages and domains where we don't have a lot of. Data. I'm really curious to, to, to see what you guys think about it. Well, I'm not a scientist, so.
2: <laughs> Me either, but talking about the stock engines and specialized engines, I think it all depends on which one is better. It all depends on the data that you have, because I witnessed something very, very strange the other day, because Intento did a study about MT engine around COVID-19 with Taos. And surprise, surprise, <laughs> Stock Engine won. Really. I mean, really won Stock Engine. That I talked about it with some people and the conclusion they gave me was the Stock Engine did, it had much more data and Taos had little data that corporate is not good. And that's the reason why Stock Engine won but in the real case scenario, talking about business, usually the engine we customize uh, is always kind of win. So it's both, both depends on the data. This is what Maxim was saying, I guess, and follow, right? And it was shocking to, to see <laughs> talk one.
4: <laughs> and it's
5: not just amount of data, it's also the quality of data. Right?
2: Quality of data, this is what they say,
5: yeah. I mean, we're talking about stock or generic engines versus domain-specific engines. And I mean, knowing that predictions in the fields of MT are always wrong, it started in the 1950s, as I said in the introduction, right? So it was always a five-year problem. Yeah, of course, we're still there. I would dare to say that like this distinction might actually vanish a bit in the sense that I'm not too sure if like training I mean, often from a resource perspective, it doesn't necessarily make sense to have very many, I have like I 10 specialized engines for language service providers for domains, right? So what if generic systems really become able to incorporate, well, domain-specific knowledge in real time? Well, I'm, I'm kind of repeating myself a bit here, but I wouldn't be too surprised if in two, three years, we wouldn't necessarily be looking at training specific models for specific domains with very specific data for just sole purpose anymore. Because as you said, these engines may, may totally fail. And to come back to policy example, if I'm translating in the field of legal, okay, so I have this very generic introduction. So if I have kind of a layered engine from an end user's perspective, well, this generic engine is able, if I don't have legal input for that specific document or that field, it's okay, to a spoon, I translate it as a spoon. But as I go on and I have my knowledge prepared for that specific domain, it'll actually take that into account. And then it will be a domain-specific engine just right away in that very instance. So I wouldn't be too surprised that distinction vanishes a bit in the future.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, no, what we are preparing for, I think the technology, this adaptive technology, the integration of terminology and the ensembling of different engines, etc. the importance is, is for the useless to see just one thing that it's very easy to use and then it, that it adapts. So I think for us, it's really preparing the data in such a way that it can be used today to train an engine and today as well to test this, this adaptive technology and the terminology. And so you're right. Probably we will train a lot less engines in the future. Well, I think the other technologies will solve the problem on their own.
0: You've sort of answered my next question already, which was going to be what some of your predictions are. And all those Samuel <laughs> just mentioned, all empty predictions are false anyways, but we might as well add some more. <laughs>
1: we want <laughs> your predictions. Any- <laughs> We're going to remember these predictions and check in with you at the appropriate time.
0: <laughs> in 70 years. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any more ideas? We've mentioned a couple already throughout the panel. Any wild guesses?
1: <laughs> any wagers? Yeah. If you get it right, you'll be famous.
0: Let me
4: take a safe bet. <laughs> I think that generally the quality of machine translation for low resource languages, the smaller use cases will get better. Either or both from the improvements in technology and from the improvements in availability and quality of data for those domains and languages.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: Could maybe add another prediction there, um, but this is not necessarily about machine translation itself. I mentioned this integration with uh, tools before. I could imagine that in, I don't know, three, five years, we'll see more interactive forms of, um, well, interacting with machine translation. I mean, post-editing today is still a very serial process, right? To get source text, output, and then I correct it, but then it doesn't, if I change a word, it doesn't like retranslate the rest of the sentence and so on. These scenarios, they're look, we looked at them in research already, but but for end users, they're not really available and then I think we'll see a lot more there, like interaction with machine translation systems, could you
0: imagine?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Also an excellent prediction. Yuka, Paula, do you want to take a wild guess too?
3: Uh, no, I think Samuel is right because it's already basically working on DeepL Pro. I mean, when you change the beginning of a sentence, it changes the, the end of the sentence and it works. And that's really something that everyone can use without any kind of, training so complete non-professionals they do that and they're amazed so it's putting a lot of pressure on the other MT providers to make it as easy to use and as well for cap tools it needs to be it's a lot of pressure on cap tool providers to allow translators to use these functionalities while post editing so I think we'll all have to become more flexible So let me
2: say something very quick I think the trend would be what we talked about before context MT that taking in account much larger context is going to be a trend. I hope because I'm Japanese and AI is going to expand, including MT. This is going to be a trend from 2020 to
0: 2021. Oh, so we have a question here from our audience, Dimitri. He says, I wonder if it's possible to switch the data sets of the engine depending on the project. When we have projects with customers from different countries, they often provide a set of strict rules the localization must follow. We can run two projects in Spanish from different customers, and we won't be able to use the engine without tiresome proofreading. So again, the question is, is it possible to switch the data sets of the engine depending on the project?
5: I'd say it's not, you know, you don't technically switch the data sets of the engine, of course. You kind of train the engine once, but you can train engines already that can take other data into account while translating. And it, this is possible. I mean there are papers out there. You can look at well, not going to name the references here. Maybe that's boring. Built the end and then what people at Syson did and it's all published. So yes, that's possible. But then you can well technically you can just provoke the integration of that data, right? So or for specific customers or domains. It, there's maybe another aspect to this question because if we're talking like some things are just very strict, like right. So I mean if it's about units or interpunctuation, sorry, that's in English, stuff like that, uh, placement of white spaces and so on. So maybe that's not so much an artificial intelligence problem there in, like in production or in practice, right? So you, I think with all the artificial intelligence in mind, we should still, well, not forget about these relatively simple problems that you can address and that can make a lot of difference. And then honestly, you don't necessarily need to tweak your machine translation engine if your customers or two customers have different problems there. This can be done at the CAT layer, for example. So, so if you have two customers, they have different expectations with things that you can change based on rules, it's perfectly fine. Then you can, should be able to use that, I guess. But I'm not sure if I bought on there. Maybe I didn't answer the question entirely.
0: I was just gonna say, Dimitri, let us know if that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> and there's another one for Yuka. So Roxana is asking if Intento is good for big companies who need to translate their sites, if like your platform and your services would be good for big companies who need to translate their sites.
2: Yes, because we are working with enterprise huge companies and we're dealing with different departments. So it's definitely a good fit. Great. And we presented use case at LookWorld. So if you participated in LookWorld, you can take a look at the IKEA implementation case. Ikea is a huge company.
4: Cool.
1: I was just going to mention that we have another comment too from Constantine Drench. He says, oh my God, I know what Paula is talking about with the spoon.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I worry, feel like there's uh, more to the story. <laughs> All right. Just, <laughs> and also Dimitri says, yes, that makes sense. Thanks. Andy's asking if we can publish your contact information, and I believe you'd all be fine if we share your contact. Is that okay? So we'll do that later. That's fine with you. Maybe not with the person very familiar with spoon <laughs> Noted. <laughs> I think. We Any should last
1: questions up. from the audience? Maybe we have four wonderful machine translation and artificial intelligence nerds here. We have quite a large audience today. There's still a lot of people hanging on. Any
4: last questions? I'm really curious about how you put the machine translation engines in production. I mean, how are you using it? Like, do you have the engines like online, which you can connect to all the time? Do you have a web service? Whether you use them offline, so you press the button, you send the CSV, and you get the CSV with translations back. So how is it organized for you?
3: Sorry, is that a question to me? It's to you and yeah. somewhere, like, primarily, yeah. Okay, yeah. No, we have the system installed on, on our own servers. And so we, of course, connect them to our CAT tools and to WordBeat. We also have an interface, an tr- online interface, where you can kind of depel, drag and drop, and text, just type. Or, and it's mm-hmm. integrated to Outlook, to Word. We have an online CAT tool as well. We kind of use it in a very versatile way. And the adaptive technology you can only use with an, a CAT tool because it needs to, you know, to correct each following sentence. So it cannot be used in an interface that is not a CAT tool. So that's mm-hmm. the only limitation. So it's a quite vers- versatile solution.
5: It's it's probably the same. Maybe with the difference being for us that we really try to focus to be able to containerize the system well, so it we can run on different infrastructures. Right? I mes- I managed uh, mentioned this uh, on premise use case before but then for some people this is not an option at all this is not interesting this is not rational even so you should be able to inst- like run it in whatever public cloud private cloud i don't know and then maybe like your own machines and that actually is not necessarily so simple because well as you know you, you need may need quite some processing some compute power um, to actually work with well state-of-the-art machine translation systems if you have them on your own machine so that's a challenge there but then basically it's a REST API you can call and then a CAT tool is just not a client. A web UI is just not a client. Yeah. Okay, cool. Thanks.
0: All right. I think I don't see any more questions. Robert, do you? I think we've covered a lot of topics.
1: I think we covered it and we got those predictions. Oh. In.
0: Great. <laughs> so let's wrap this up. Thank you so much for joining us on this panel today and thanks to all our listeners for sticking around and for all their questions. It's been really great having you and it was great talking to you all. Thanks, Tanya. Thank Thank you. Bye, guys. Bye. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the International Bus Podcast brought to you by WordBee. To learn more about our translation management system, check out our website at wordbee.com and be sure to subscribe to the podcast for release notifications. Until next time.